This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of our interview with Samil Shaw. In this installment, we will cover questions including... What additional team construction may A-round investors be looking for beyond what's required at seed? What exit outcomes do A-round investors require, and how does that impact the pitch at this stage? What's the biggest difference in the fundraising dynamic between seed and A, and why does leverage shift from a negotiation standpoint? How have macro trends and LPs impacted the price VCs are willing to pay? What unique things does Samil do to help his portfolio companies reach an A? What advice does he have for investors and entrepreneurs on the topic? And finally, related to the article on Sequoia Scouts, we'll get Samil's thoughts on Series A and Seed Investor Partnerships. And I wanted to say a quick congratulations to Scope AR for their seed fundraise. We were very fortunate to have an opportunity to get an allocation in this incredible startup that recently went through Y Combinator and has some revolutionary technology in the augmented reality space. We were fortunate to invest alongside a friend of ours and guest of the program, Leo Polovets at Sousa Ventures, and our new Stack Ventures syndicate showed tremendous support for Scope AR as we closed and made an investment just over 350 k If you'd like to get involved and see our deal flow, we'd love to have you join the syndicate. It's called New Stack Ventures on AngelList. Speaking of which, Samil has an active and large syndicate as well. So check out the investments he's doing by just searching for Samil Shaw on AngelList. With that, let's jump into the interview. Here's part two of The Path to Series A. Samil, We're all looking for great founders and teams at the seed stage. What additional team dynamics and construction may A-round investors be looking for beyond what's required at the seed? I think they just want to see a good team, not fully formed necessarily. It doesn't have to be, but something where people are in a key function. So like, you know, maybe that's the two founders, a head of sales and a director of engineering, and maybe... They've got a couple of holes, like they need to hire a CRO eventually, right? Yep. So it, I don't, I don't want to say like it's got to be the whole team, but it's the CEO and the founders need to demonstrate that one, they're thinking about it and think it's important, and two, can actually attract good candidates, right? Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. What exit outcome potential do A round investors require, and how does that impact the way entrepreneurs should frame their pitch at this stage? Yeah. So the entrepreneurs should always be gunning for here's how we become an independent company and don't need don't need a bailout, 
right? Um, So the entrepreneur should always just show a path to independence. How do we become a big self-sustaining company? What investors will do behind closed doors is depending on the fund size, if it's someone's doing a five to $10 million a round and it's a $200 million fund, you know, they're trying to get to a multiple where they feel like there could be an exit, right? There's only two exit paths. So they'll do an exit profile and kind of say, Hey, you know, we think it can reach this level. You know, I guess 10 X is kind of the bar, but as a fund size gets bigger, they need to see potential larger multiples. So it's really a function of fund size. If you and I start a company and we go pitch a $125 million fund to do three or four million in us or, you know, a billion dollar fund, their return profile of what they need is very different. I'm trying to think of, was it you that wrote about a certain amount of ARR in, in the next five quarters or? No, that's probably Tom because that's more of a SaaS thing. Yeah, okay. Um, Got it. Sorry. But folks at SaaS tend to look at cohort data and they want to see like six months of data and they want to see that you're growing every month and that there's the average sales price ESP is high and that you can sell them to enterprise, right? So the SaaS folks are kind of like the sabermaticians as they are in baseball. Yeah. That's like the sabermetrics of SaaS, right? So what is the biggest difference in the fundraising dynamic between seed and A and why does the leverage shift with regards to negotiation? There are a few points. One is there's so much money in seed and there's so many people starting companies that entrepreneurs can dictate the amount that they raise and the caps that they raise them on. Right. They can dictate the timing associated with it because they're using notes, which are rolling, not equity, which is priced at a moment in time. Um, and frankly, we're in a culture of, you know, we're still in the Mark Zuckerberg social network. This is what you do culture, right? So that's what happens at seed. What happens at A and why things shift is because it's more of a zero-sum game in most cases, not all, for venture investors. They have to own a certain percent for their model to work. They have to lead the round and not have other VCs in the round, right? They have to compete against other VCs for a hot company. So I might want to do an investment in Segment IO, which is a very hot SaaS company, but I'll probably lose that, even though I've identified it to these three other people who are just expert in SaaS and have a portfolio and the founders are going to pick them. Yep. So it's it's a totally different game. Totally different game. Do you feel like the A investors have more of the, the leverage at, at the negotiation stage? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question. The only caveat is some of the rounds, now that the environment has changed a little bit, a seed investor can go in and let's say the founding team is raising 750 on a 4 million cap and they've got a couple of 100K the seed investor can go in and just say, hey, here's 500K. Here's a seed investment, right? Yeah. And boom, I already own over 10% of your company. And by the way, if I've got the cash, I'm hopefully picking you because you don't need my daily or weekly help. I trust you to get to a point where once you're ready for introductions, we'll make them for you. So there's a few cases where that applies, but generally, no. Can you talk about how LPs are impacting the price VCs are willing to pay and what macro trends are causing this? Yeah, so one one is there are many more LPs that have come into the asset class. Yep. Not that the asset class is ballooning, it's just more types of... So instead of just 
endowments, foundations, corporations, fund of funds. You're now having sovereign wealth funds. You're having corporate balance sheet. You're having families coming in right at larger amounts. And so some of them may want to do direct investments. So they may ask their GPs, hey, we'll fund you. We'll, we'll be your backers, but we'd also like to see your deal flow. Or they may say, hey, I don't like, you know, I've been in this fund for three or four cycles and I think they suck now. So let's spin out a couple of the two and fund them, right? Yeah. Because they have all the deal flow. So there's a lot of new fund creation as a result of LPs either trying to invest directly or trying to fund the people who actually have the deal flow and the brand in some cases. So that's that's partially why you see the atomization of venture and more funds being created. Do you think that's also pushing prices up? That's a very good question that I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer. Is it pushing prices up? Yeah, because if you have more people competing, if you have more funds competing for an investment and it is a good investment, yes, it benefits the entrepreneur because the cost of capital is cheaper. So yes. Samil, it seems your approach is unique from other investors. What do you do differently with regards to helping your portfolio companies on the path to A? So in general, I think the idea of a very active, helpful, roll-up-your-sleeve investor is completely overblown and a marketing tactic that people use, one, to position themselves in the market, in the sales process, to sell an entrepreneur. They use it to sell themselves to LPs and to make it look like they're active. I like to be active in the situations that matter, but I'd like to pick people who necessarily may not need my help for months. So, you know, my view is to pick people in markets and pick products in markets that I think can be dynamic. And at the point where I feel like I can help them get on a path to do a serious series A round, hopefully they'll take my advice, right? Sometimes they don't, you know, can't control that, but I try to determine that upfront. Any other thoughts or advice for investors or entrepreneurs trying to obtain Series A funding? So for founders, I mean, just read and listen to all the stuff I've produced in the past and really study it and listen to this interview. <laughs> for investors, I think I've been surprised. There's very few seed investors who think about the next round methodically. Now, part of that is because a lot of founders just don't want to listen. And part of that is it actually takes time and relationships to make those things happen. I can't tell you how many times that I'll run into a Series A or B investor in the neighborhood on the weekend or we'll be texting on the weekend or having a beer and I'll just tell them a story about a founder. And I'm like, she's amazing. In the six months I've been working with her, she's been really ramping up. And they'll say, I'd love to meet her. And I'll say, well, she's not raising. I'll say, I still love to meet her. And so a lot of it is way, way more personal. And in those situations, a seed investor can't lie, right? Um, yeah. Their currency is being honest. And so I would just say for seed investors who who want to maybe go in or get better at it, and I don't mean to say that I'm an expert, although I would I would say it's the most specialized thing that I do, is to think about that process and how those deals actually get done, right? Because it's a mix of left brain, right brain, in terms of making sure that the company has the proof and the provenance, if you will, to look legitimate, to warrant a 60-minute meeting of someone else's time is very valuable. But also the other softer side of, hey, I think this person would get along with this person, right? Yeah. 
and that doesn't come up on the spreadsheet. Yeah, there's a sort of a personality fit with a lot of these things. Yeah, that's why I never worry about software replacing what I do because the last force rank of everything, I have to use my brain because it always comes down to one or two or three things I can do. And in that last moment, I do use some software to get it to that point. <laughs> and then I pick. <laughs> you know, there was this this article recently about the Sequoia Scouts and how they're scattered all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. Related to that, do seed investors sort of partner or have their set of Series A investors that they most often work with and, and sort of stick in packs from that standpoint? I think some very experienced ones do, for sure but not many. I think that part of my job, uh, both for the LPs that have invested in me and the founders that you know, allow me to come on in order to do a job for them in the future, is to really understand the surveyed landscape of who are the downstream investors that are suitable, right? And to make sure that I have a good sense of what that is, right? And that could change every six months. Samil, can you talk about some of the things you're currently most focused on? Mainly the challenge has been just like building long-term LP relationships. So, you know, in addition to the daily, weekly meeting companies and helping out companies you've already invested in, trying to build a long-term relationship so I can continue to have independent funds because it's very competitive and difficult to raise funds from LPs. Sure. It takes just a long time. It's very inefficient. So that's probably the one thing I spend my most time thinking about and is like the most inefficient use of my time, but is also very important. That's what I would say. If we could address any topic in venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think the one thing that's kind of technical that sits in between venture funds and LPs is this uh, idea of the LP and the GPs wanting to have a, an image that they're extremely selective versus the realities of how how wide a funnel can be at the top and how you have to actually spray and pray in the beginning. And so very early stage investors, Y Combinator, 500 startups, Sequoia Scouts, all these other things. I'm actually going to write a post about this. It's spray and pray, right? Yeah. You want to just widen the net to catch something. You want to index it. And obviously you have some filter, so it's not completely scattershot, but it still is an index. A lot of the larger LPs, they just want an investor to come in and pick the the winner out of the hat, and it just doesn't happen like that. So to me, the Sequoia Scouts article was the trigger for me to write this post that I'm going to write, which is going to be, it's not spray and pray, it's spray and pray plus pounce. And that, I think, would be a good issue for people to discuss more openly because it's silly to think that venture investors know at Series A and B that they're picking a winner. They don't know. Any quick thoughts on Title Three and what that might mean for uh, the startup fundraising landscape? That doesn't sound great to me, but I guess non-accredited investors can invest in the stock market. So the problem is, is that there's liquidity in the stock market, right? Yeah. So if you start day trading and then start drinking whiskey and then stuff goes bad, you can kind of get some of it out. It's pretty liquid here. <laughs> Um, so I would, I would say, you know, then the logical answer there is it's probably okay once there's liquidity in place. Great. Finally, Samil, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? 
You know, this could have actually been its own topic because I've been really thinking about this and <laughs> I've been overloaded with email and it's a great problem to have. And I may, I'm not sure yet, I may ask people who want to meet me to at least get a warm intro, not an intro, but like a warm intro with like three to four lines, maybe of specifics from somebody I know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because I, I don't know how else to sort everything. The only caveat would be is if someone is building something very specifically in those areas that I'm investing in, that's fine. Those are probably going to be my two filters. Does it fit the criteria or is it through somebody I know? That's probably the best way. And I'll, I'll write that post very soon. That'll be like, okay, here's what I invest. Any points I should direct listeners or... Yeah, Twitter or my blog is fine. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty easy to reach me. I'm more accessible than most and very responsive on email as much as I can be. Well, Samil, thanks so much for sharing your time today. I've really enjoyed your writing, uh, especially the long-form stuff for some time. So please keep writing, and thanks so much for doing the interview. Yeah, Nick, thanks for reaching out, and I look forward to hearing. Hopefully I didn't say anything offensive. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Really great thoughts in this interview with Samil. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called Rifles Over Shotguns. Samil talked about how it's best to have a targeted shortlist of preferred Series A investors that a founder should want on their board for the long haul. Approaching this round in a targeted way shows an ability for precision-like thinking, a desire to minimize time spent because the founder's time is better spent elsewhere. And it demonstrates that the founding team is willing to do some homework earlier to find the most suitable partner. Creating a Google Doc of 100 investors that the startup is trying to get introductions to is a clear signal that the thought process and approach are just off. 
Treating this like a common application to college shows that the entrepreneur does not realize the importance of fit and that this situation will be tied to them and associated with them for many, many years. And prior to making a seed investment, Samil monitors if, number one, they have the desire to go down the VC fundraising path, and number two, they have the maturity and intellectual curiosity to go do it. The second key takeaway is called rolling closes and stacked notes. Today we talked about rolling closes, stack notes, and the problems they create. We've all heard the terminology from entrepreneurs. Well, first we did a friends and family round, followed by an angel round, then a pre-seed round, then our formal seed round, and now we're doing a seed extension. Not only does this undermine the stability of the company, because the cap table is a mess, but this also undermines the decision-making process of the entrepreneur. If the company is being put at risk with multiple tranches of stack notes at different caps, what other suspect decisions are being made that may compromise the business? Samil mentioned that some A investors are willing to help fix the cap table, but most will not even engage until the founders have recapped the previous rounds and streamlined ownership. The third and final key takeaway today is called team vision and metrics in that order. Samil stressed that professional investors will still emphasize the importance of team first. VCs want to work with people they like, that they're inspired by, and ultimately can learn from. After that, the market potential and vision of the startup are critical. Here Samil cited Chris Dixon's excellent article, The Idea Maze, where the founder walks him through this labyrinth of how they will get from A to B. And with regards to the numbers, he said that the metrics disprove delusion. Of course, it depends on the sector and company type, but the metrics should substantiate the story. If the numbers aren't supporting the vision, then delusion may be proven. And recall that Samil stressed the importance of progress. Many Series A investors will ask when a company was founded because they want to see strong momentum and progress. If the company's been around for a long time, and hasn't hit that growth curve, investors may be looking for the milk carton expiry date. Okay, let's wrap up with our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Lost Leverage and the Captains of Crunch. In today's interview, Samil talked about how entrepreneurs are dictating the amounts they raise, the valuation caps, and even the timing through the use of rolling notes. This is largely driven by the proliferation of capital at the seed stage. We've all heard the many talking heads arguing if a Series A crunch does or does not exist. Instead of focusing on all the orphan startups that won't receive A round funding, consider instead the effect this is having on the A round negotiations for the startups that do get funded. To get some clarity on this, let's start with some of the numbers. And all the graphs that I mentioned will be included in the blog post on the site. First off, let's start with the overall seed VC funding levels, which hit a five-year high in 2014, reaching $1.3 billion. This total dollar figure was a 49% increase versus 2013. But how does this compare with Series A and B? Seed funding may be up significantly, but if there is the same corresponding increase at the A and B stage, then it should remain in relative balance. 
Tom Tungus did an analysis based on crunch-based data that analyzed the success rates of seed-funded companies in obtaining Series A and B capital. As the graph shows, from 2006 to 2013, the mean success rate to raise an A after a seed is 27%. To raise a B after an A is 35%. And that results in 11.5% of seed-funded companies that eventually get a B. However, as Tom discloses, he published this analysis in early 2014 and included data from 2012 and 2013. This results in artificially low percentages. Imagine a startup that closed their seed round in November of 2013. This analysis, published a few months thereafter, counts this startup as one that did not raise an A or a B round. So any companies receiving their funding in the most recent years would look like they failed to raise follow-on financing, wherein they may not have even begun raising their next round yet. This analysis also excludes successful outcomes and exits aside from continued fundraising, which makes the numbers look overly pessimistic. Tomas states in his post, Despite the noisy data, it's reasonable to conclude the financing market has become more competitive, driven by an increase in the total number of startups raising seed capital and a relatively constant inflow of capital into venture capital. Even when I remove the last two years of data and account for non-funding successes, his analysis still illustrates a clear trend in the decline of seed-funded startups that receive a follow-on. CB Insights conducted a similar analysis over a more limited time period from Q1 of 2009 to Q2 of 2011. While they display the data after that period, they removed it from their analysis for the reasons just mentioned in the Tungus article. Over this period, they found that 39.4% of seed-funded companies receive a follow-on, nearly four companies in 10. But with the limited time period covered in this analysis, it's hard to see if follow-on success is trending up or down. Back in early August, I was reviewing these numbers and was digging for a more current analysis. Coincidentally, Danielle Morrill of Mattermark was looking for column ideas and asked on Twitter if anyone had ideas for graphs they'd like her to make. I chimed in and requested percent of seed financings that receive Series A funding within two years, multi-year trend would be great. And as is typical with Danielle, a few weeks later, she delivered with a robust and detailed report. The first graph here shows the incredible spike of seed deals over recent years at growth rates that far exceeded increases for later stage rounds. Seed funding in 2014 and 15 appears to have slowed down, but the trend still far outpaces that of later stages. You'll notice the absolute number of deals here differs from the CB Insights data we just reviewed. I believe this is due to CB Insights including VC deals only, whereas Mattermark is looking at all seed deals conducted by both VCs and angels. It was Danielle's next graph that truly got to what I was looking for. Here she charts the seed to A graduation rate i.e. the percentage of seed-funded startups obtaining Series A funding. 
After peaking at 45% in 2009, there's been a steady decline. As with the other studies, it's best not to look at the two most recent years of data, as those startups may still be raising an A. If we draw a line at 2012, as Danielle has done here, the percent has dropped to 30%. While five years ago, we were in a climate where nearly one in two seed-funded startups received a Series A, we're now looking at less than one in three. But do economic principles bear out? Has the supply-side increase in seed-funded startups transferred additional leverage to the A and B investors? It seems the best way to determine if Samil was right and the AB investors have increased their negotiation power is to look at valuations. We all know that valuations have increased, but are they increasing at a higher rate for the seed stage than for later rounds? According to the included chart from PitchBook, over the period from 2010 to 2013, median seed pre-money valuation has increased from 3.2 million to 5.2 million. That's a 62.5% increase. Median Series A pre-money valuation has increased from 6.8 million to 8.9 million, a 31% increase. And finally, Median Series B pre-money valuation has increased from 21.1 million to 25.7 million, a 22% increase. So over the recent four-year period, founders at the seed stage have been able to command a 63% premium to previous levels versus a corresponding 31% increase at the A and only a 22% increase at the B. If each of these valuation amounts had increased in equal measure, it would be reasonable to conclude that the balance of leverage has remained constant despite the jump in seed activity. But that's not what we're seeing here. Is the Series A crunch real? Is there an increasing concentration of investor leverage at the Series A and B stage? Take a look at the numbers, and you be the judge. Thanks again to Samil for his insightful and candid thoughts on the path to Series A. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back.